I have with me today Associate Professor Dr. Karen Epley from Penn State University. And Karen is the editor of the Journal of Research in Rural Education. Karen, welcome to our conversations. Thank you for having me. Karen, I thought you'd be a, uh, a perfect person to talk to about rural education and issues in rural communities in America. Could you, we might start with how the rural is understood in the USA. That's a really good question. Probably not one that can be answered easily. <laughs> probably not, no. Um, I have some thoughts. So the word rural tends to conjure images of low income, white majority communities in the Midwestern and Central Appalachian regions of the US. You can see the Midwest version of rural in movies such as Fargo or Brokeback Mountain. You can yep. see the Appalachian version and movies like Deliverance or the soon to be released Hillbilly Elegy. Yep. Well, so whether the rural map, it's what? It's gonna be a movie, is it too? It's Hillbilly going Elegy. to be a movie. Yes, so you'll be able to see kind of Appalachian rural from some Vance's point of view in that movie. So whether the rural imaginary in the United States is Appalachian or it's a Midwestern farm community, rural communities are generally relics of a simpler time are conversely understood as deeply entrenched in addiction, racism, and homophobia. Okay. So American Indian, Latino, African American communities that complicate this view are ignored, right? In the same way that pockets of economic prosperity are ignored. But I think the actual answer to your question is that it completely is dependent upon who you're asking and why they're asking, right? I think the perception of the rural vote and the US presidential election of 2016 is still relevant in the media. Rural America as racist, homophobic sideshow made for a much more interesting explanation of Trump's victory than his white suburban women voters. Also around that time, methamphetamine use in rural America saw a lot of attention and shown kind of a negative look at the deviants kind of spotlight on rural Appalachia in particular. And also happening around 2016 uh, was the release of Hillbilly Elegy. Okay. That became a bit of an uh, explanatory text for the political shifts at the time, didn't it? But there's, there's been an explosion of books about rural America and, and that sort of Midwestern belt around the same time have come out. It's yes. been, been a popular topic. Often reinforcing those very damaging narratives that you have referred to. We see a sort of similar thing in Australia with the indigenous response, indigenous issues or rural difference. We've had a political shift here with um, some of their minor parties uh, trying to speak up more for what they refer to as marginalized rural communities, which tend in their own stereotype to not as be as cosmopolitan as the rest of Australia. So it's, it seems to be a, um, an issue that has some resonance over here as well. I must admit, though, I, I prefer um, uh, Helen Highwater has a movie about the, the rural. I'll check that out. I've never heard of that. Haven't you heard of that? <laughs> oh, I'm not. Oh, no, it's a um, great director. He's done, done three. He's done Helen Highwater, um, did um, Sicaro, which is now two, and did um, uh, one set in an Indian community, Indian reservation. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> so, we have to send 
I'll, I'll send them to you. They, they're, uh, well, I think they're good. So. This, this issue of Appalachia and, and this sort of racialization of a rural construct is really, really interesting because it, it echoes what happens globally, that there's these stereotypes that are perpetuated. Policy-wise, any distinct ways in which the rural is, is presented? I think the statistics and statistical definitions are pretty strong in America from what I understand. Right, I think just like anywhere, right, policy follows public perception. So in the rural imaginary, rural people are MAGA supporters or white trash, crackers, rednecks, hillbillies, they're assumed white. Rural is not only a social difference, but a stigmatized social difference. And in the US, this dates back to social and economic circumstances dating back to colonial America. So it's definitely not a new conceptualization. So policies for a variety of reasons have not favored rural places, and they're generally under-resourced as a result. But the conversation should not just be about resource distribution, right? Other factors like how rural is represented as homogenous and backward, and the relative lack of political power rural communities have form a sort of trifecta of barriers to justice for rural communities. So it's more complicated in my view than just you know, we, we need better financial supports for rural schools and communities, which is true, but that in and of itself is not adequate. I think um, that issue of different ways of thinking about justice is key. That's something, uh, as a, you know, I'm very interested in over here, about different ways we can think about what it is to provide justice through policy and, and process that better meets the needs of, of communities. I'm talking to you at the moment from Broken Hill in far western New South Wales, and we've been visiting schools in uh, small communities out here and seeing the con continuity of issues that we were dealing with 20 years ago that haven't changed. It's like our frameworks clearly are not working. It's a, a challenge for us as researchers to come up with new approaches. I don't know if this is true in your context, but there is a potent idea that in the US that rural communities aren't really deserving of justice because they've made particular choices as, as individuals that have led to their own disenfranchisement. So this is closely related to a kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps myth. That's one of the most endearing ideas in the United States history, right? So from this point of view, then the struggles of rural communities are not a result of systemic inequities, but rather they're the result of a series of poor life choices made by people lacking the smarts or dispositions to be successful in modern life. I think there'd be an element of that in our context as well. The, uh, I guess, what gets used that neoliberal catch-all is um, close to an explanation that notion that communities need to stand on their own two feet and, and make it work. And uh, we'll provide you support to do that, but then what you do with it is up to you. And if you don't, then well, that was your choice. So a, very, a similar sort of notion in that respect, yeah. It's uh, certainly an issue. So how does this impact on schools? What, if we were to sort of talk about rural schools and you're, you're the journal editor, so you've probably got a great insight to the sort of research that's being done or the research that might even need to be done is not being done. What, what's happening in the, in the school context in America? Well, statistically, rurality in the United States is a space of educational inequity on some measures, such as college attainment in particular. But other data suggests that rural kids score as well as urban kids on standardized tests for whatever that's worth, however much you know, 
state you want to put in standardized tests. Um, but fewer rural students than suburban or urban both enroll and graduate from college and universities. That's pretty clear. Rural schools also struggle to recruit and retain classroom teachers and school leaders. But still, standardized test scores are in some measures close to suburban and better than urban. Interesting. So that urban distinction is quite, quite, um, quite significant then. Mm-hmm. It is. I guess just for, for the people uh, not familiar with the context, uh, I understand the urban context to be inner city schools in larger cities in America. Yes. Is that how you would characterize it? Which have, a, they have yes. their own challenges equally. So yeah. that notion of hard to staff of lack of college access is very similar over here too. So another, another commonality, but I guess the, the standardized test scores for their challenges is not something that we have um, uh, parity in over here. They're certainly often behind in rural schools, often to do with the nature of the measure, I, I would suggest, but kids are also not accessing the curriculum at the same breadth as kids in the city. Would, is, is access to school subjects an issue in America? Um, in what ways do you mean access to school subjects? So in our second senior years, the kids have a range of subjects they can study, but because of a lack of teachers and, uh, and resourcing, they, only, they don't access the, the full range that is going to then help them move on to other careers or other opportunities. They're only accessing the very basic um, array of subjects. Yes. So in the United States, we use advanced placement testing. Mm-hmm. And so those are um, supposed to be college level classes delivered in high school, usually 11th or 12th grades. Um, and certainly there are far fewer AP classes in my children's rural district than there are in the neighboring district that's very close to the university. I think they offer maybe 30 AP classes. And in my children's district, which is far more rural, I believe they have three. So when these are neighboring districts, you know, the border is within minutes. So that AP classes are definitely an issue in K-12 education. And that puts rural kids at a disadvantage when they go to the university because they can test out of some of the introductory classes and also because they just had access to the highest levels of calculus, psychology, English literature, whatever the subject might be. So there's not as much of a disconnect from the rigor of high school compared to the rigor of college. Okay. So that's the, that's the language in, in the American context. That would be some of the, we have advanced subjects that are um, like say uh, mathematics versus general mathematics, advanced English versus English. And it's the, the advanced ones that we, have less access to, so that'll be on on a on a parity with the advanced placement classes. So a similar sort of issue yes. on of comparison in that respect. Then, okay, exactly. And teachers need special certification to teach those classes, and they have to take a course. And it's not, you know, you, you can't just have a teacher that can theoretically deliver the course. The college board kind of maintains some really strict controls on who is teaching those courses. Um, and the content also is identical in any school. So the, the college board provides the content and the standards for teaching um, and the testing. 
of the child when they finish the course. Okay. So place-based education is pretty popular over there as it is over here. So that idea of making the, the, the curriculum meaningful in place doesn't happen as much in those classes? Or is it, or is it a no. proxy for making things more local and generic but not of the high standard? It gets used sometimes over here uh, wrongly in that respect? I would not say that particularly since the Common Core that place-based education has a real foothold in the United States. I would not, I would not say that, um, particularly not in AP courses, right? There is no, I mean, if you are a child in, you know, Brooklyn, New York, you are taking the exact same course, the exact same test as my high school senior is. That's the curriculum is completely standardized and it goes so quickly that a teacher wouldn't be able to place that curriculum just because of the nature of the speed of the class because it goes really, really fast, right? But in general, I don't think there's um, good evidence that suggests that place-based education is really being used to any great degree anywhere in the United States, particularly after Common Core. Okay. So it's, yeah, I think that's, there's probably a similarity here, funnily enough, actually, even though it's pretty popular amongst some rural education folk, the curriculum yes. is largely standardized. So it seems it is, is it an academic interest for the researchers as a way of working against that commonality rather than a um, on the ground measure, do you think? Exactly. That's exactly what I think. I think that's what we're trying to, you know, talk against standardization, right? And get teachers to engage their kids critically with place but that is enormously difficult to do with the Common Core and AP courses and just generally standardized curriculum that we have in the United States. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've very centralized one as well. I guess that comes into the issue around um, Appalachia as an example that you're mentioning and the literacies and rural literacies work around recognizing that it's the distinct practices of places and communities because that's something that doesn't get a lot of traction in in policy in that respect with curriculum, but is really noticeable and uh, and meaningful in communities, isn't it? But just really not happening on the ground in schools, I would say overall. I mean, I think there are pockets where people are doing things with you know video making projects and um, art space work, but on the whole, it's you know mostly silent in that regard. Yeah. So. As a, someone who works with students and works with rural rural education, what are the what are the key messages you try to, to get your pre-service teachers to to understand? There's a there's a bunch listening to our, our talk today. Or in, if they were in America, what would the, be the messages they were getting? Do you think? And why would want my students to think about their learners in a place, right? So the students that have come to me have been successful under a standardized system, right? I think that's really to keep in, important to keep in mind that it's not that they don't see places where change could happen, but that is more difficult because they've been successful within the current system. It's worked for them. They love school. They played school when they were children. They want to keep playing school, right, in some ways as teachers. So I think that you know, the goals have to be small, right? I think the idea that um, kids are not the same everywhere, 
and that curriculum ought to reflect the needs and interests of children in a place, I think that in and of itself is very, very radical, mm -hmm. right? Not to mention thinking about how, how we might use critical pedagogy in rural places to have them kind of deconstruct ideas around their community, why things are the way they are, how could we affect change, right? I think in the United States, at least in most courses, or I think, I think I'm saying this accurately, that we're still to the point where, hey, let's imagine a world where kids really matter in the daily curriculum. Wouldn't that be nice? It would. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you, know, you know, my interest in the spatial justice and the rural knowledges and, and local knowledges in, in the curriculum, and it's a way of, yeah, it's when I talk to teachers like we've been traveling this last week, um, the notion, the idea resonates with them as a language for what they're trying to do to, to work back against a system that is marginalizing the children in their classroom so they see happening on a day-to-day -day basis. But they're so small and the system's so big. But we're providing them with some language, but we need to provide them with more than some language to help help with this balance. So a, a challenge. I think there's been some traction with that idea in urban spaces, right? I think there's been some traction, but in rural, not yet. Yeah. Not yet. It's interesting, isn't it, that a lot of the place-based work actually emanates from urban, uh, urban America. And yes. uh, it's just, just uh, then been picked up as a tool by the rural folk, I think, try to work against it. Yeah. So any, anything that's um, worked in America that, we should think about over here. I know uh, the charter school movement's been pretty big over there, and you've done a bit of work in that in that space. That's something we should be looking at. Well, um, generally the the research on charter achievement is pretty weak, right? So my particular interest in charter schools is around schools that have opened in response to a closure mm -hmm. of the community school, not a situation where parents want to open a new school to compete with the local school, yeah. right? So my interest in charters is very particular, narrow application of charter law. And in that work, I don't think I'm taking a stance that this is a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing that's happening in response to school closures. But I think Kai Schaff did a pretty major study recently, and he has some really good data to show that you know, charter schools are just devastating to the economies of local schools and also generally produce particularly bad results, mm. particularly in the online, the cyber versions. They just don't do a good job for a variety of reasons. So, um, so no, please, Australia, do not start using charter schools. <laughs> so that was a... Please don't do that. That was that was a bit of a bad, bit of a cruel question because um yeah I I, I didn't want to imply that you you support them it's just uh, um I know they've had a bit of a vexed history so <laughs> um I didn't know Kai had done that work I hope I look forward to reading it when it comes out that'd be great sorry I think it's an interesting space that I feel like I empathize with these folks they have lost their school they don't want their kids to go to the consolidated school forty five minutes away. But on the other hand, they're opening charters in a lot of cases, you know, there are some major problems with those new schools. 
They, they have not really been able to replace a traditional school with the new charter, even though that was their intended goal. It just, for a variety of reasons, it hasn't worked. Yeah. It's because um, they're, they're very um, ideologically based on that notion of uh, creating uh, a performance space that will raise standards. Sort of, we've taken some of the logic with our um, public reporting of results to put pressure on, on schools and communities. But uh, yeah, they don't. They don't have a great outcome. No. And that notion they do of other things. They help separate people out from people they don't want to be with, maybe. Yeah. Well, not not when your school closed, though. They don't. No. You have no choice I but mean, to go to one. Right. I mean, you, well, you can you can go down the road, but you can leave the community to go to the to the consolidated school, or you can stay in the community school. So that's a really key difference of how they're used differently um, in response to a closure as compared to parents are unhappy with a school and they try to do something better, right? So that's a really key difference. They're not separating folks. And actually they, they end up bringing other kids in from neighboring communities, which are a whole nother issue. Um, but so they end up being in some cases more diverse, particularly in special education, than the traditional school that the charter replaced. Wow, that's fascinating. Interesting yeah. stuff. Yeah, um, I look forward to uh, to Kai's research being published on that. It'll be good. I think to the, I, I'm I'm remembering echoes of um, we did a special edition of um, small schools as community hubs from the European Education Research Conference a couple of years ago, and there were a couple of European papers from, uh, from countries in more central European locations where they had similar phenomena, not so much with charter schools, but they, the local school had closed because consolidation of small schools and moving kids to larger ones is becoming a bit of a global phenomena. But a number of communities turning yeah. around and then taking the over the building site and saying, well, okay, you've closed it down, we're gonna take it over and open a school where the school was. <laughs> so. The government then saves itself having to provide the provision and the local community takes over the responsibility inadvertently. So it's, it's yeah, a, that's exactly what's happening in a lot of these communities, except it's charter law and it's more complicated, but that's the yeah. gist, right? They just, they want their school and they'll, they take it over. Yeah. So how would you um, promote working in a rural place how, and even living in a rural place? Now you're, you, very committed to these rural communities. You live in one, live in one yourself, as do, as do I, where I live. Mm -hmm. I, I love the community connection and the bond. I just don't like the big urban environments personally. And I, uh, I like the connection with kids and the community and the connection with the, the community and the place in which we live and work. How would you promote to your, your professionals that you, you prepare in terms of, I don't know, come and get all that stereotypes, come and live and work rural. Well, I generally bristle at the idea of rural places being held up as kind of the soul of the nation, right, in the United States. But I do think that rural places as places of hope for a better future, I think in a lot of ways that still stands up, right? Rural people have had to be innovative. They had to be creative. They had to, they've had to work alongside each other to make their way. Right? I think those are qualities that we can rely on when we think about making our way towards you know, a better future for all of us. So I, I think all those things you're saying are true, right? I think they're places where you know your students and, 
you know, places where you tend to have good community support for your school and, you know, places where you know your neighbor. And, and I think all those things are true, right? And I also think that there are spaces of hope because in a lot of important ways, you know, world people are kind of used to the struggle, right? We've been here before, um, we can work together, we can make things better for the future. So that's kind of how I like to think about it. Yep. I think uh, I like the way you phrase that. There's, there's certainly a nice positive outlook about the future there. I, um, I often struggle with the notion that urban places are better when they're, I think of the urban places I know and they're sort of often divided, have large inequities, people don't feel safe in some aspects of them. So all these things that we talk about is the future of humanity. But we want people who can, as human beings, to relate, to feel safe, to know that we can have conversations, have the interpersonal experience, which aren't things that I see and aren't people that the rural people I talk to, like where I am at the moment, they don't see that in the urban environment either. So it just, just seems this upside-down notion of, of humanity. So maybe, I'm, maybe I'm getting a bit in the romantic sense myself then. <laughs> You've got to keep going somehow. <laughs> this is this is true. This is true. Right, Karen. Um, thanks for having a chat with us this afternoon. Over there, we appreciate it. We've had a had a bit of a chat with a colleague um, about rural education in China and rural communities in China. So good to have the United States perspective. Where um, we've talked to to Mike, uh, which had a bit of Canadian input and some Canadian issues. So we're getting a few um, global perspectives on the issues in rural communities and, and the, the commonalities that exist in many instances and the distinctions that exist in others, a bit like the, the, the construction in America that you're talking about, the, the racialization of things is a particular difference there. So it's good to try to bring this, I guess we're, what are we moving towards some sort of um, global comparative rural education study perhaps. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I like but, that a lot. There's an idea. <laughs> Thanks. Um, thank you for your time this afternoon, Karen. Um, greatly appreciate it. I'll, I'll, I'll let you go. It was Karen Epley from Penn State University. And Karen edits, as I said, the Journal of Research in Rural Education, which is worth having a look for a range of research articles about rural education issues. And a few ideas there, perhaps, of some uh, future work internationally we can do in this space. That notion of the rural as a distinct construction in America and some of the political and social forces influencing it really does open up that notion of international comparison with commonalities and differences, which is really something, I guess, at a point of what we're trying to push in some of our rural communities research. Why do these communities exist in a marginalized way across the globe with different social and cultural contexts? What is it about the rural in the modern world? I think that's the issue we have to keep trying to focus on. In that note, we'll leave you to another day. <laughs>